Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. We spend some time with our family and we come back and uh, the political season uh, remains hot and heavy. Uh, big news this week, I think obviously, is uh, Kamala Harris, who at one point maybe wasn't the front runner, but looked like she could be heading in that direction, got out of the race. I'd say a couple things about that. First of all, I admire that. I think people generally um, stay in races too long. So when it's clear that in this case, she didn't think she'd have the money, maybe not the support she needed in the early states, uh, you know, she decided to get out of the race. So I admire the the quickness and decisiveness of that decision. Um, you know, kind of an ugly few days for the campaign leading up to that. The New York Times and Politico both had kind of really ugly stories about the campaign and infighting and backfighting. And that's always, um, if not a death knell, a, a pretty bad sign. And, you know, uh, listen, running for president, working on a presidential campaign is is maybe not as hard as, as people who are, you know, working in Amazon warehouses and, and, and working three jobs. And so I, I don't want to equate the two, but running for president, at least in the political arena and working on it is the hardest thing uh, there is. It's, it's brutally hard under the best of circumstances, you know, from a stamina standpoint, a pressure standpoint, the stakes involved. And so that's in the best of circumstances. When you have moments where your dirty laundry is being aired publicly, you know, there's nothing worse. It, it erodes trust within the campaign. It obviously makes it harder to retain your staff. Uh, your fundraisers are calling nonstop asking what the hell's going on, uh, political press inquiring. So that's a tough situation. So the, uh, you can survive them. I mean, John McCain in 2008 had a campaign implode. You know, Donald Trump, you know, most recently went through, it seemed like 3,000 campaign managers. But that's the exception. And generally, it's hard to survive these things. But you couple that with the fact that the money wasn't going to be there. You know, I think Kamala Harris, who's an incredibly talented uh, politician, um, great person, uh, I think she has a bright feature, maybe as a Senate leader, maybe as an attorney general of the United States, uh, made the right decision. What that does to the race, I think it's it's too early to know. Uh, you know, Cory Booker is making, I think, a really important point, uh, as is Castro, that as of right now, only white candidates are going to be the, on the debate stage in December. I think that's wrong. So I hope both of them are able to to get the support they need. I'd encourage all of you to, to think about contributing to them to help them get on that stage. But it is interesting because Kamala Harris, I think, looked like the most likely candidate potentially, if she did well enough in Iowa and New Hampshire, to put together, you know, some significant African-American vote in South Carolina that would really, I think, um, put a lot of pressure on Vice President Biden, first and foremost. So with her out of the race, 
you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether Cory Booker can really put together the kind of momentum he needs to become that threat. If not, you know, I think that definitely advantages Vice President Biden. Again, if he comes in fifth in Iowa, that may be not something he can recover from. But if he's able to do what he needs to in the first couple of states to have a real chance to win South Carolina and does that and wins the majority or, or at least a clear plurality of the African-American vote, um, you know, he's going to be very dangerous, I think, um, going into March and April. And at that point, I think would regain the statuses as the clear front runner. Um, I think some other candidates are going to have to make some hard decisions as well. I mean, no one, if it's clear you're not going to do well in Iowa, you know, it's better to drop out, in my view, than get one or two or three percent. So my guess is we'll have some more winnowing between now and, and February 3rd when we have the Iowa caucuses. Um, last point I'd say for, for Kamala Harris as a candidate for her team, this was true for Beto O'Rourke and his team. I think it'll be true for some other candidates who get out either before Iowa or if they don't do well, drop out in February. You know, we should really thank these folks. Um, this is a really grueling obstacle course they're trying to run. They give all of themselves and their family goes all in. And, you know, people are working around the clock, um, you know, 16, 18 hour days for something they believe in. Uh, and so uh, I think we should salute people when they get out, even if they made mistakes, even if their campaign strategy didn't materialize for being in the arena. Uh, because again, there's plenty of things harder in life than running for president, but in politics, uh, this is the hardest thing you can do. Our guest today, actually, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to. Um, Kevin Sheiky is Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager. Kevin has spent over 20 years with Mike Bloomberg. Before that, he worked for Senator Moynihan uh, in New York in various senior roles, has worked for Mayor Bloomberg as a deputy mayor uh, in the city, in the Bloomberg uh, Corporation, helping them with a lot of their global uh, policy and advocacy and, and marketing work, and now is leading the campaign. And so uh, it's fascinating because all the candidates this time, all the candidates in 16, all the candidates in 2008, go back really to the modern uh, primary era, you know, I've kind of treated this as a sequential process. You know, you go to Iowa, you go to New Hampshire, you go now to Nevada, you go to South Carolina, and then the campaign goes relatively national. And Mike Bloomberg's made a decision to skip the first four states and really start his campaign on Super Tuesday. We've never seen that before. And we've certainly never seen that before with someone with the resources to mount a vigorous campaign. Mike Bloomberg will probably spend more money uh, throughout March than the rest of the field, maybe combined, uh, but certainly more than, than any other candidate. So, just from a political science standpoint, it's super interesting. So we're going to talk to Kevin about that and why they made that decision and kind of what their prospects are. Uh, Mike Bloomberg is also doing something very interesting. He's mounting a primary campaign, but he's also running general election-oriented advertising in battleground states, which I think we should all be grateful for. Now, that's part of his message, which is I'm the best person to take on Trump. So watch how I'm doing that. But obviously, it's helpful along the way that he's doing that and exposing people to some of the problems with Trump as Trump really begins uh, to increase his his digital game. So I think it's fascinating for Bloomberg to think, can somebody basically start their campaign in early March when all the political attention is on Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada? We've never seen it before. If Bloomberg, you know, is successful, we may see it a lot more in the future, uh, but it's going to be fascinating uh, to hear a little bit more from Kevin about how they made those decisions and, and what their strategy is going forward. Kevin Sheiky, you are finally managing a presidential campaign. It's great to have you on the podcast today. It's uh, fun to follow in David Plus' footsteps, both today and uh, historically. <laughs> well, let's talk about that, because obviously... Um, You've been so integral uh, to Mike Bloomberg uh, in government, in business. 
You've led several efforts when he was thinking about running for president um, through the years. You guys actually looked seriously at it earlier in this calendar year, um, made a decision, um, you know, early part of 19 not to run. Now you're jumping in pretty late. So walk me through that thought process a little bit. What, what got you guys finally to the start line? Well, listen, Mike had decided obviously not to run, as you say, um, had, had looked at the race. Um, you know, his, his driving uh, thoughts this cycle was that he thinks that uh, Donald Trump is an existential uh, threat to the nation and to the work he does globally on issue of climate or issues do- domestically like gun control. Um, and he wanted to make a difference. Um, he's not normally someone that sits on the sidelines, obviously. Uh, but he also made a determination that there were candidates that could get into this race and could win. Um, Mike spends um, a lot of money in the causes that he cares about. Uh, he led an effort um, last year uh, to take back the House. Uh, he, uh, we polled about 60 different races, uh, Republican seats that we thought could swing. We ultimately chose uh, to lead campaigns in 24 of them. And in 24 Republican seats, uh, we uh, flipped uh, 18 of them uh, to uh, Democratic control, 15 of those uh, now held by women. Uh, this cycle, he was really focused, as I said, on the, on the presidential race. Um, and I think he had sort of uh, resigned himself to, to playing and doing what he could from the sidelines to affect that cause. I think what changed is we continue to look at the race, as, as other Americans do. Uh, Mike does it with a obviously vastly uh, deeper pool of data. Um, and, um, you know, what we saw is the same thing that a New York Times poll saw earlier this month, that Donald Trump's winning. I don't think it's something that people want to say. Um, I think it's really hard to understand. It's even tougher to believe. Um, given everything uh, we see. But we, as you know, vastly better than I, uh, we don't have national elections. Uh, We have an electoral college system. Most states, about 54 of them this cycle, are either going to be Democrats, are either going to vote for the Democratic candidate or the Republican. It's sort of pre-decided. I live in New York. There's no question that the Democratic candidate will win New York. There are about six that are up for grads. And um, the New York Times polling and our polling, uh, we were also polling at the same time. We didn't know it. Obviously, they didn't know it. They still don't know it. Our polls overlapped by about a day. Um, We were polling the same six swing states, which are Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. That's where the presidential race will be fought this cycle. Um, And Donald Trump's winning. He's winning those states um, against some Democratic candidates. He's winning all of them. Um, And uh, although it's an uphill task for what we're doing, uh, Mike decided he didn't want to sit on the sidelines. Um, And so, like I said, he's never someone to do that. And he thought that hey, listen, I'm going to get in. I'm going to try to make a difference. I'm going to be doing two things. I'm going to be trying to affect this president's chances of winning. Um, and I'm going to be running for the nomination. Uh, we're doing both of those things. And we can talk a little bit about that. Um, and we'll certainly try to bring them together as Mike is the nominee. But that's what changed. Right. So, and I violently agree with you that that Trump is a grave threat uh, to get reelected. I think there's been some some press reports that surmise that, you know, you guys thought that Biden would be the strongest candidate um, and that, you know, if he ended up being the nominee, um, you know, Bloomberg would feel more comfortable being on the sidelines. My sense of it, and so correct me if I'm wrong, is based on what you just said in terms of polling, your concern is nobody currently running uh, gives us the confidence we should that they can beat Trump. Yeah, listen, I I should say about the former vice president, um, you know him um, uh, better than I. Um, I find him to be perhaps the most decent public servant uh, I've ever met and have, have had the, the great joy of having uh, personal experience with him. Um, but as we may, listen, we did, we did two sets of polls. The second, which I mentioned, was, which was really looking at head-to-heads across a number of uh, Democrats uh, uh, in, the, uh, in the general election and, and seeing depressingly um, 
depressing results. Uh, you know, we also made a few assumptions about uh, the primary and how ultimately it would play out. Um, and, you know, it's not something that, listen, I think, you know, I want other Democratic candidates to be able to run uh, their campaigns. Um, uh, I want them to get their message out, so I'm certainly not here to say anything negative about them. But the, but this campaign is on a trajectory that could produce a nominee that will lose those races, uh, that will lose Michigan and, and lose Florida and lose North Carolina, um, and quite frankly, the other states as well. Um, and so, again, we're actually running campaign against, and I think it's something else we should talk about. We've actually launched a campaign against Trump. Uh, we are spending uh, about a million dollars a week digitally. Um, in those swing states against Trump. Um, Trump is largely otherwise running unopposed. Um, we have a, a, an early primary system, um, which is doing us as Democrats a disservice and giving the president a great gift in focusing the campaign in a, a red state um, in the upper Midwest, um, where all of our resources are focused on an early state primary, while the president is running virtually unimpeded in those swing states with a very active and historically well-funded campaign. So let's talk about that. I want to come back to the primary. So in your primary campaign, you're obviously going to be focused on an electorate that's, you know, people who are going to participate in caucuses or primaries. The anti-Trump spending that you're doing right now digitally, is that aimed at general election swing voters? So folks who won't participate in the primary, are you trying to to maybe accomplish both tasks, reach some of those voters who will be swing, but also seeing if you can get them in for Mike Bloomberg in the primary? Right now, it's focused exclusively um, uh, to defeat the president. It Mm -hmm. uh, was launched uh, in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, extended in North Carolina, uh, will extend through this weekend uh, into uh, uh, Florida and Arizona. Uh, Those are not, you know, early states. Um, And uh, for people that look at those ads, they're not Mike Bloomberg ads. I mean, they're ads that are designed to tell people the truth um, about the president and directed at people who should understand that and can and, and hopefully will be persuaded to vote against him. Right. So I want to come back to the general with you and go deep in some of those states in your effort, which is so incredibly important. Um, but in the primary, so I must admit, I'm fascinated by your strategy as someone who's, you know, been a former practitioner of politics. We've never had somebody try and skip all four early states, but have the resources then to mount a national campaign. Um, I think given, you know, when you guys got in, number one, the fact that you both have financial resources and a strong team led by you, I think it was the right decision. But but walk me through that. How tough a decision was that? Or was it just pretty clear as late as it was that you guys should skip to, to the March states? So let me answer that for you, but let me take a step back, right? Because I think there's something important to understand here that I, I sort of touched on a little bit, which is we have a campaign, a primary campaign, and it existed for, for 60 years. And the idea is that you run in the early states. And uh, uh, the, pe- the great people in Iowa, and there's some terrific people out there and friends of mine, and, and Mike has traveled out there, and the people in New Hampshire, uh, Mike grew up just south of the border. Um, listen, they're happy to tell you that for 60 years, no one has become president without winning both of them or at least one of them, right? So we essentially understand, boil that down to what it means. We pick our presidential candidates in primaries in, 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 in two small states, which, rec- which represent about uh, uh, 2% of the ultimate uh, delegates that you can get towards a national nominating convention. Uh, we call early states, as again, you know vastly better than I, and we throw in the first four. They're, they're, they're four that, that occur in weeks back to back, as this show has talked about, I'm sure, and South Carolina are the, are the other two. So we talk about those four early states. Those are the states that we've chosen not to compete in. Those are the states that pick our nominees, and quite frankly, it's really the first two. Not a single one of those states is in contention as part of the, uh, part of the national election, right? So it's not just that we pick the four. The way the process works is that we spend, as a candidate, most candidates, 
uh, to run 90% of their time, you would put a better figure on this because you did it, in, in Iowa, right? Barack Obama is said as the junior senator from Illinois to have gone to Iowa 83 different times or a number like that. Uh, candidates, even those like Kamala Harris who just got out, said, hey, listen, my job is to live in the state of Iowa for a year. Uh, John Delaney actually did live in the state of Iowa and I suppose still does over the course of the last year. And so you have Democrats, in our case, dozens, um, uh, more than just dozens, who spend an entire year raising money from around the country. Then they hire staff and they plow it into Iowa, right? They know every door knock. They know, they know every voter. Um, they open dozens and dozens of offices and they invest in that state over the course of the year. Understand that is total sunk cost if your desire is actually to beat the president. Now, it may be, and I'll come back to this, that that process simply produces the single best candidate that you can find to ultimately become president of the United States. And that's, of course, how the theory goes historically. But understand, while we're spending every nickel that you know 22 people around the country can raise to put into this state, with a little bit in South Carolina, a little bit in New Hampshire, a little bit in Nevada, Donald Trump is putting all of his money an historic amount of money that he's raised into the states that actually matter in in, in November. Uh, and he's doing that not over the course of this year, but of course over, over four years. Um, and so he gets an enormous head start, which gets back to the point of what Mike is saying, which is, hey, I'm going to start spending against Trump in the states that he's essentially running unopposed. Whether I'm the candidate or not, I'm going to spend that money today. Back to your, your other question, which is, hey, Kevin, yeah, but that's the model. Like, Hey, can you really not do that? Like, give me your theory of the case. And I guess, it, you know, it goes like this. Listen, I, I've been out to, to, uh, to Iowa. I think, again, the people out there are terrific. The stories are terrific. The stories I hear from the early Obama days are, are amazing and, and, and bring a smile to my face every time I hear them. And if you think that the rest of America needs to know who those two states pick, then that's the way the system works. If, on the other hand, you think that the other 46 states actually matter, Right. And that they actually need to be involved in this race. Right. And that people want to connect and be organized in Texas because that can ultimately vote for a Democratic president as um, the population shifts in Texas. And that people in Florida, which is very much a swing state, want to be included. And that the people in California want to be included. What we find as we travel around the country now, still very early in this campaign, is that there is no one there. Right. There is no one else campaigning in those states. And people are desperate to get involved. Right. Most of this country wants to organize to remove this president. We have this blip in terms of how we run presidential elections and, you know, sort of a Senate-like system of sending electors around to these states. And it's sort of a winner-take-all. And we're left with this idea that six states pick our president in November. But Mike has decided, uh, and we can go into why we made that decision, um, to say that, hey, maybe we don't have to pick our president in two small states. Maybe you can run a nationwide campaign. I don't think that anyone has really done that since John F. Kennedy and really gone from one coast to the other and tried to involve everyone. Um, and it may be, listen, people say to me, great, you're going to spend all your time in these states. And uh, when they pick you know, the front runner after New Hampshire, it's not going to matter what you've done because the rest of the nation is going to fall in line. And if you believe the people in Texas wake up to try to understand who the people in New Hampshire picked to be their presidential candidate, then I'm wrong. If you think the people in Texas want to get involved in this campaign now, and they don't want to sit back and wait to find who they think should be their candidate now, and that Mike Bloomberg campaigning as he did in Mississippi yesterday makes a difference, then Mike Bloomberg's in this race. And he's in this race to get everyone involved ultimately win that campaign in November. Well, that, you know, that's, again, I'm fascinated by it. Because, listen, you mentioned Kamala Harris uh, got out of the race yesterday. 
I'm sure there'll be others who drop out before Iowa. And then once people start caucusing and voting, others will drop out, right? So so while most people won't succeed, you are going to have, you know, maybe it's a couple candidates doing well in those four states, gaining momentum. And so I guess the question for your campaign is, while all that's going on in January and February, you're Mike Bloomberg's campaigning in those states. Obviously, you're going to do a tremendous amount of advertising. You'll probably be spending more money in the March states than the rest of the camp field, maybe combined. And so do you think you can get to the point by, and people start voting, as, as you know better than I, because you're looking at this deeply now, in February for a lot of those March states early. I mean, do you need to be in the sort of high teens, low 20s by then to to kind of accomplish what you need to in March um, so that you can withstand whatever momentum, um, you know, one or two candidates may have coming out of the early states? You know, I... Uh... I want to come back to a point about those early primary states. I mean, I think, listen, I haven't set any bars, uh, nor has Mike, in terms of sort of where we need to get on any particular date. Um, I will tell you, I think that actually campaigning across the country and putting a message, whether it be against Trump or for Mike, in places that, quite frankly, aren't hearing any messages at all is going to make a difference. And I think when the next round of national polls come out, you're going to see people actually um, moving towards Mike because they like his message. They like the record of who he is. Um, He's the only person, quite frankly who has a record of doing what he says he, he can and will do. Um, and I think people will be surprised. I mean, let me make one more point just because I, I feel like I should have made it before around that early stage strategy. I, I think as a party, I think we, we have done ourselves a disservice in terms of how we establish how we pick those winners. Again, I think the theory is, hey, listen, let's ha- find a highly retail place. Let's make sure you know our presidential candidate can be very retail. You know, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that Mayor Pete is doing well in Iowa, partly because, listen, he's a very strong candidate, uh, partly because um, he's a good candidate on the road, but partly because he's just great in retail. They did a poll about a month ago and said how many people have met Mayor Pete, uh, the, the potential caucus goers, and 37% of people in Iowa have actually met him. Yeah, I actually want the remarkable. poll to say, hey, have you met him twice or three times, four <laughs> times? And that was a month ago, right? And so again, that's our theory. The truth is we live in a world now that Donald Trump has mastered, right, which is basically managing the media and social media and other forms of media. Right, He never ran a campaign that said, hey, he was going to go out and meet half the people in Iowa. He ran a campaign that leveraged modern media and leveraged a message and ultimately was able to win. We need to produce a candidate who would ultimately to do that. Hey, listen, if, if Mike Bloomberg you know, won this presidential campaign, and this is not a job I'm asking for and not a job I feel qualified for, but if he said, I want you to go over the DNC and I want you to put a system in place that will guarantee that a Democrat will never lose another presidential campaign or at least be best advantaged. It is entirely clear to me what you would do. You would still have an early primary system, which the DNC can dictate, as you know, given how they are given the power to uh, allocate delegates. And you would say, hey, listen, our early state primary system is based on what's going to, what are the swing states in that election. So in this cycle, the first state would be Wisconsin. The second state would be Michigan. The third state would be Pennsylvania. And the fourth state would be Florida. And that's where Democratic candidates would have to be. And if Democratic candidates had been living for the last year in, in Wisconsin and getting to know the people of Wisconsin and investing in field offices and knocking on doors and understanding the voters over a year, having done that with money they raised from around the country from Democratic donors, you would never lose Wisconsin. And then if you said the second state was Michigan, right across the border. You don't have to skip from Iowa to New Hampshire in a long flight. You would never win, lose Michigan. And if you said to them, keep an eye on Pennsylvania, we're going to reward you for, for winning that state and then down in Florida, you would win those states. And a Democrat this cycle would, would have an infinitely better chance of becoming president of the United States. The, the converse of that right now 
is the president of the United States, Donald Trump, running unopposed in those states? Well, you and I may have to do an entire podcast on this because I I think you make some really good points, and I do think the nature of our politics has changed. Um, But I do think that even though the national election, general election, is not a retail affair, I do think there is some value to that. Your point is you could start it somewhere else. But let's say, had you guys decided to run at the beginning of this cycle, would you have made the same decision to skip the first four? No, I don't think so. I think the record shows that. Listen, when Mike was first thinking about this, he went to Iowa, and there's some great folks out there. Uh, uh, who we know and, and who said they would like to support Mike and take him around. Um, we went uh, up to New Hampshire, uh, a state that uh, Mike was familiar with because back in his Boy Scout days, he went to camp up there. And uh, as someone from the Northeast, has a great affinity with folks up there. Um, he loved running around with uh, uh, Senator Shaheen's uh, husband, uh, who's quite a character. Uh, we went out and spent some time in uh, Nevada, uh, Mike spent some time with the culinary workers out there, and, and quite frankly, there was sort of a natural attraction. Uh, Mike had uh, really turned New York City into the tourism capital of the world, uh, had run a campaign to bring 50 million visitors a year to New York, something that he exceeded in his time as mayor. And so if you're with the culinary workers in, in Nevada and your job is to get people to travel to, to, to Vegas and spend their money, Mike is a pretty attractive candidate. Um, and we went down to South Carolina. In fact, Steve Benjamin is a co-chair of Mike's campaign as a great mayor of Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and so, no, we looked at an early state strategy, and it just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Uh, like I said, hey, listen, Mike threw a curveball in. Uh, he looked at some polling. Uh, he saw what I think some people see, which is right now uh, Donald Trump is winning this election, and that has to change. Um, and he decided, hey, I'm getting off the sidelines. You better figure out how we get in this campaign and how we make a difference. Uh, clearly, part of that right away was to start spending heavily against Trump in swing states. But the other part was, hey, listen, it's too late to, to – to get into an early stage strategy. Candidates have been out there. They've spent a lot of time there. They've built networks there. You're not going to compete regardless of your resources or uh, the amount of time you're willing to dedicate it to it. So we're going to do something different. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of think it's cracked the code. Um, I really do think that after we run this campaign, that people need to rethink how we run our primary process and need to start thinking about running campaigns that include the rest of the country. I mean, Texas has 10 times the delegates as New Hampshire. It comes a week after South Carolina, which is considered one of the early states. And no one's down in Texas. It's a state that, that is moving towards becoming a blue state. No one has any offices down there. No one's doing any uh, registration down there. No one's building field organizers down there. We will be, right? Uh, Mississippi has more delegates um, than New Hampshire, although that's very much a red state in a national election. No one's including uh, the folks uh, down there. Mike Bloomberg went down to Arkansas to personally file his paperwork uh, to become a candidate. I don't know if anyone could remember the last time someone had personally done that in Arkansas. I went down to, to see to, uh, to, to see a, a friend of mine um, who will go unnamed, and you'll figure out who he is because he's a, a wonderful two-term mayor of uh, New Orleans about three weeks ago. And I said to him, uh, hey, I, I talked about the theory of the case and what we're doing, and I said, hey, who, who runs politics for you down here? And he said, you know, I got this campaign manager, and this guy is, is really terrific. Kevin, listen, the reason I was successful down here, the reason I got elected, the reason I was able to do everything I could do, and you know who I'm talking to. He still walks the streets of the French Quarter, and it's incredible the number of people that come up to him and thank him for the time he spent down there. And I said, well, what's, what's he doing? He said, well, he's got a consulting shop down here now. And I said, well, yeah, who's he working for? And he's got some clients. I said, yeah, yeah, but come on. Uh, on the presidential, who's he working for? He said, Kevin, we, we don't have a presidential campaign down here in Louisiana. Um, and I thought to myself, well, of course they don't, right? Uh, Louisiana has an April uh, uh, primary, 
right? By the time you hit April, it's called a rally, right? There's no one who's opening up an office and organizing people and trying to get them involved, uh, registering them to vote. And I said to him, hey, listen, will he work for us? And he said, uh, yeah, yeah, I think he'd really like to do that. And so he, he came on uh, board two weeks ago, and he's not only working uh, down in New Orleans and, and around uh, Louisiana, but he's organizing folks who, who have done politics for mayors all across the Southeast, right, in ways that folks just, no one calls. Yeah, so, I mean, so you know, whoever is sort of alive and, and, you know, doing well in the early states, obviously, for you know, they'll send staff from South Carolina to Louisiana, but that won't be till the end of February, right? So you guys are going to get kind of a 60-day head start, which may not seem like a lot, but but it is. And so that's the other thing I think that's interesting here. So let me ask you a question about You actually mentioned Louisiana, which is April. So as you think about the March and April states, are you guys planning to build organization, have your candidate on the ground, run advertising in all of those states and all the congressional districts that offer delegates? Are you likely to try and um, emphasize some more than the other? Uh, I'm just curious um, how you guys are thinking about that. Every single state. And so, listen, we'll certainly have some tier one states, and those are sort of larger as we get into this uh, late, but now uh, larger super Tuesday states. Um, But uh, that will quickly move into the states that that have their primaries in the the last three weeks of March, and then uh, the primaries that – the states that have primaries in April as well. Listen, as you say, we will not only be there 60 days earlier. We'll be doing stuff that ultimately they never do, right? It is – it's really tough to put, a, as you know, to put a real field operation together in a large state in two weeks. Yeah, it's a beast. Right? Yeah. Um, and by the way, by that point, you're doing it across a dozen different states. Uh, the ability to do what Mike does, um, uh, to do that, you know, three months earlier, um, is, is, listen, I think it's going to be transformational. Um, and I think it's going to have people rethinking how they run campaigns. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast selling a little or a lot 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now shiki you're probably too much of a pro to give me an honest answer but i know there is an honest answer to this question i'm not sure i've given you an honest answer yet why do you think i'm about to start now no (laughs) no 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 but this is so you guys are obviously you're doing everything you can to maximize starting on Super Tuesday, then the rest of the calendar to get a lot of votes, got a lot of delegates. Part of, uh, you know, the ultimate answer to how well you do is who's in that final grouping with you. And so, um, you know, I don't think any of us know coming out of South Carolina will be a two candidates who, who truly, uh, in addition to you guys, might have a chance to win. Is it three or is it four? But as you look at that, how important is it? And you don't have control over this, you know, which can always be frustrating. But how important – so, so for instance, if it's Warren and Sanders that somehow come out of this one-two, I'd imagine that's more to your liking. You know, if Biden somehow regains some strength and, and comes out of South Carolina with a win, maybe less so. So – I know you can't control that, so maybe you're going to tell me you don't give it a moment's thought, but but do you have a sense of what you'd like that final grouping to look like that you guys are going to be joining the battle with starting in March? No, I mean, and, and listen, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest with you here. One, it's, you know, you can't be dishonest to a, a, a question that fundamentally you don't know the answer to, because um, I don't know the answer to that question, and none of us obviously know. You know, I think what we do know is let's talk with a few fundamentals, right, which is we know, you and I know, that the only reason anyone ever drops out of a presidential campaign is for lack of money. That's basically it. There are other things that contribute to it. Right. Um, you didn't win enough votes. You didn't do well enough in the polls. Maybe you just had a shitty fundraising operation. I don't know. But there are lots of reasons that contribute to it. But that's the reason people get out. Um, I actually think you have a number of candidates in this race who have a propensity to go forward pretty for a pretty long period of time because they have uh, pretty good fundraising operations. And I think in terms of fundraising operations, uh, you know, the large dollar uh, fundraising operations are not what they used to be. I think candidates are, you know, can be propelled by them in some extent. And there's not, there are no candidates that, do, that don't take contributions at the limit that the uh, federal uh, law requires. But you really do need to have small dollar donors to keep these campaigns going over the period with which they give because some of your, your large dollar donors are capped and, and they can't uh, give again. That's the first thing. The second thing is really this rule uh, that you know, which the DNC hands down. So the DNC controls about controls how many delegate states get, as you know. Maybe you've talked about on uh, this podcast before. Uh, largely, that's built on the size of the state. But then it's weighted by how many people in that state 
voted for, uh, the in this case, the, the Democrat in the last election. So although Texas and Florida are larger than, than my home state of New York here, New York gets about 273 delegates from the DNC, Texas about 228, because more people in New York uh, voted in the last election uh, for the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton. The states then get it. And the states can do almost anything they want with a really important exception, which is the point of this story. They then take the delegates they get, and then they split them up by geographic region. For the most part, that's congressional districts within inside those states. Texas uses state Senate districts, which are slightly larger than congressional districts. And then they have to apply the one rule that the DNC gives them, which is, hey, you can't give any delegates to anyone who was on the ballot unless they got at least 15% of the vote. And so now apply that to Iowa, it's kind of interesting. Uh, if you look at a poll of Iowa, and you know this, but for the people that are listening, if you see a poll in Iowa and it's got 12 people uh, who are sort of got some percentage of the vote, any candidate that is below a 15% threshold is leaving Iowa with, with no delegates. Now the math there in a multi-candidate field like that really only allows for two or three people to get above the 15%. If you assume that there is a second tier of candidates of about five who are getting something. What happens then is those two candidates or three candidates um, get a larger proportion of the of the total amount of delegates uh, to be allocated uh, above that 15% line. And so, listen, someone might win. Someone might be get more caucus goers than anyone else in Iowa. They might get 36% of uh, the uh, the delegates uh, of the vote. Caucus goers votes, they will get 52% of the delegates, right? It is sort of outsized. And so there, there is a distinct advantage in a campaign like that. And we haven't really seen that in a lot of elections. But if you assume there's going to be eight people, let's say, who are running this thing at least through March, only about three of them who get above that line are going to get any delegates in any of those congressional districts. And they, but they are going to get an outsized percentage of what they ultimately do. Um, and that's going to have a really interesting effect on this race. Listen, it's a long way of saying, which is you have to sort of think about, which is, hey, is Mike one of those top three in any congressional districts or any states around the country, right? And if he is, who are the other two? And ultimately, what does it mean? And what are they splitting up? Listen, you know, my bet in this campaign is that Mike Bloomberg is a candidate with a message that you don't have to be, um, you don't have to run in simply the early states, but you can actually launch a national primary campaign that in doing so, you're going out to states which, quite frankly, are used to being somewhat ignored or states where people show up extraordinarily late, two weeks before the election actually occurs, that people will gravitate his message in some way, shape, or form, that his numbers will move, and that by the time other candidates get there, they're not going to forget that. Those candidates in Texas or Oklahoma or Arkansas, Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, they're not going to wake up and think, you know, I actually kind of fell in love with this guy, Mike Bloomberg, over the last three months. And, you know, but the people in New Hampshire you know, they saw a different movie and liked it, so I'm going to change my mind. I don't think that's the way things work. I also believe that in today's world, you can build a brand over three months. Now, I think you can destroy a brand in a day, but you can <laughs> yeah. build a brand quickly. That's for sure. Right? We're not in a world now where everyone gets their news from three national networks and their local paper, right? You get your news and your information from a lot of sources. No, I think, again, what's so fascinating about this is basically everybody else running this time, much less historically, as you mentioned, you know, is running a different race than you guys. And those things are going to come up against each other starting in March. So obviously, Kevin, you guys are planning to get in this to win uh, and and to be the candidate as we exit March. Because really by March 18th, I think we're going to have a very, very good sense where this race stands after most of the countries voted and most of the delegates. 
But in a scenario where you guys aren't the poll position, where, you know, you're getting votes, you're getting delegates, but, you know, you're getting 15, 18, 20 percent. Maybe there's another candidate doing that as well. But somebody has emerged, you know, whether it's a Warren or a Biden or a Mayor Pete who's getting 35, 40. And it's clear that, you know, maybe they're not going to get the majority of the delegates, but they're clearly going to be plurality. My sense is, and I think this is true for a lot of the field, but my sense is Mike Bloomberg's not in this to you know, to make a statement. He, you know, if, if after a period of time, it's clear you're not going to win, you know, my guess is you guys take a look at that. But is I have heard some people concerned about that, which is just given the amount of money you're going to spend. You know, and some people talk about Sanders in the same way. He's got a lot of staying power, got a lot of support. Candidates who may, you know, be doing relatively well, but not well enough to win. How do you guys, I know you guys have thought about that. And again, you got to put that back in mind because you're just trying to, to win and get into the 30s, get into the 40s uh, and take the lead. But in a scenario where you're, you are doing 15, 18, 20, what kind of, what's your view of that, both for you and for the rest of the field? I guess my point is, I'd rather us not start the general election against Donald Trump in June or July. If it's clear someone is going to be the nominee, um, you know, by the end of March or early April, let's get on with it. You know, I, I, I've heard some versions of that, and, and, and it's literally Greek to me. I mean, I think it's sort of like a parallel universe. I, I get the idea of not starting the, uh, uh, the general election um, in July, which is why we started it two weeks ago. Right? <laughs> so the only person actually running against Donald Trump today is Mike Bloomberg, right? Like I said, you know, there's this perverse thing. You and I wake up in the morning, and we read Mike Allen, right? And Mike had a little thing the other day. Mike writes for Axios for people that don't know. Sign up, read Mike Allen. It's what David Pluff reads in the morning. A little plug for Mikey there. Um, but Mikey had this thing that said Donald Trump is outspending uh, the Democrats on impeachment three to one, may have been four to one. And they had a figure of this six, seven million dollars that he spent over the last month and the sort of uh, de minimis figure that uh, Democrats collectively are, sp- are spending um, uh, to push the issue of impeachment. I looked at it and I said, I don't think people get it. Donald Trump is outspending the Democrats infinitely higher because Donald Trump is spending seven, eight million dollars in those swing states I keep mentioning, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, we're spending it in Iowa, right? And so Mike Bloomberg is the only person, in my view, who's running against Donald Trump today because he is worried about Donald Trump and he thinks he's winning, right? And so I don't see how anyone can look at this campaign now. But again, there are people who disagree with me and they're sitting in a parallel universe who don't understand that Mike Bloomberg is going to have an effect, which is going to lessen Donald Trump's chances of being elected. We can come back to it in another show. Obviously, uh, you and I have talked in the past offline about some of the things we're doing and trying to improve the digital ad targeting of the Democratic Party in terms of how it competes with Trump, that quite frankly, Trump is three cycles, maybe 12 years ahead of where anyone is in the party, and that we're going to try to shrink that gap, if not close it entirely over the course of this campaign. But Mike is, is focused on one thing, and it's beating Donald Trump, right? Mike is not running this campaign to run against any candidate. Um, people keep asking Mike about, uh, in the past, we're in the campaign now, but I'll ask him about Elizabeth Warren. And they expect some some vicious response from Mike about Elizabeth Warren. And Mike's response about Elizabeth Warren in private and in public, and quite frankly, with Elizabeth Warren is, hey, listen, Elizabeth Warren and I disagree on, on quite a few things, right? Uh, but she's smart. You know, she's hired smart people, and she's not Donald Trump, right? And if she's running against Donald Trump, I'm voting for her, right? And so, listen, I think at the end of this, Democrats will get behind whoever the nominee is. I think that there is a chance that that will be Mike Bloomberg. It is my job to, to, to make it so. And I think by running a national campaign, we can do that. But, you know, make no doubt, like I said before, we are running a campaign against Donald Trump. We are running a campaign to Mike Bloomberg, the nominee. I hope to bring those things together. But I know this for sure. Because we are campaigning around the country, 
not just in those states that are the early states, which, which have a de minimis effect, in the national election in November, and because we're running in those swing states now, Mike Bloomberg is having a positive, very early impact on Donald Trump's chances to get elected, and that will only grow as we go forward over these next three months. And I, he may, and I certainly hope he is the nominee. I think he is the best candidate to bring together the broadest possible coalition and the best campaign and the most resources to ultimately defeat Donald Trump toe-to-toe. Um, there's no question in my mind, if that was not the case, I wouldn't be doing this. But whomever the Democrat is, because Mike is in this race, will be stronger to face him. There is no question in my mind. Yeah. So, Kevin, I think that's highly encouraging. You mentioned you and I have spent some time offline through through the months and years talking about uh, the digital gap. Um, you know, I'm involved in an organization now helping Acronym uh, try and help fill that gap. We're doing advertising now and, and boosting news in the battleground states as well. We're obviously, you know, I think everyone's happy to see what you guys are doing. So it sounds like, you know, your goal and you're going to put, you know, every ounce of energy you have into this and your team to make Mike Bloomberg the nominee. But if he's not, it sounds like no matter who our nominee is, you guys are committed to staying the course and helping us defeat Trump. That was uh, true before Mike announced and will be true whether he's the nominee or whether he is not. Well, that is hugely good news. I expect to be the convention in one one way, shape, or form. (laughs) But that's important because I do think that, and it's not just the spending. I mean, you point out the spending disparity, but he's got Fox and he's got Breitbart and he's got the Epoch Times. He's got all these outlets that tend to be unified, right? So even before you get to a dollar he spends, he's got a massive advantage in terms of the content that's being put out there and and shared. So I think even when you look at the dollar-to-dollar disparity, which is grave enough, I think it's much worse than that. But let's talk about the general election. So first, if Mike Bloomberg is the nominee, are there states that you think he might be stronger in than the rest of the field? Some people mention Florida is one of those, maybe Arizona, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, Fox might, um, Trump might have Fox. We have uh, campaign headquarters with David Pluff. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about that here in the studio with New York. These guys. Are, hey, man, we better pack up now if that's true. But yeah, I appreciate that. They're feeling like they can take <laughs> on Breitbart toe to toe. You got a team of guys here right now and they're, they feel, they're feeling pretty oh, good. Oh, man. Hey, listen, I think, you know, so let's talk about what those states are again, right? It's Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, Florida, and Arizona. Um, Hey, listen, I think at the end of the day, you need a candidate who can bring together the broadest possible coalition. I think you need someone who could run the most effective campaign. And I think you need um, someone who can have the most effective message of what they can actually get done. I think on that basis alone, I think as I look at the field, I think that's Mike Bloomberg. I think in terms of looking at those states, listen, I think if you held the vote today, I think Donald Trump wins Florida. I was with a, a former mayor from Miami this morning and who's a good friend talking to him about it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, Trump's winning Florida. (laughs) Like, it's just no question about it. In his view, he's a former Democratic mayor. Um, And I said, do you think Mike can beat uh, Trump in Florida? He goes, yeah, if we have Mike as our our nominee, we'll we'll beat Trump in Florida. But it's a tough race, right? I mean, uh, uh, listen, there was an Obama-like Democratic nominee down there uh, in the the last gubernatorial race, as you know, uh, against basically a Trump lookalike. And and we lost, right, um, in that state. Um, I actually think Trump gets a half a point just from moving. Listen, he clearly moved for tax reasons. You know, he, <laughs> he took away the state and local tax exemption. Uh, he didn't get any more. And so, you know, the guy has, has basically gamed the U.S. tax system his entire life. That's the reason he moved. But, he, you know, he'll say that he's a, uh, uh, he's a uh, um, uh, Florida resident. Now, he'll give him a half a point. Hey, listen, when Trump first ran... Uh, he didn't really have a record on on issues for the Jewish community. You know, his whole record was, "Hey, m- my daughter has converted. Um, I have Jewish friends." That was his his whole record. 
Um, I thought most people should have been insulted by that. Um, but, you know, look at, you know, what Trump has done um, uh, somewhat um, psychotically in terms of how he's dealt with foreign relations. But if you're someone who's who falls within a certain part of the of the Jewish community in Florida um, around the issues of Israel, listen, um, he has he has a record. Uh, there may be some people that hate that, but there's certainly issues that he's done to, def- in his mind, defend the state of Israel that, and I'm not um, trying to make a value judgment one way or the other, um, but he can go out and sell to, to some part of the community down there. Um, you know, that's gonna be a tough state to win. I think Mike gets into that fight and I think Mike wins Florida. If you win Florida, listen, you only really need to win one or two other. Yeah, it's almost a checkmate. Yeah, um, but that's, uh, you know, again, right now, I think Trump uh, is an odds-on favorite to win that state against any of the field before Mike got in. So let's talk um, a little more general. So, you know, I mentioned some of the work we're doing at Acronym. We've been uh, in these states uh, with uh, messaging and advertising to swing voters. Um, you guys have obviously both been doing and thinking a lot about this. So, so less about Mike Bloomberg specifically as the nominee. One of the things that strikes me as we look at the research um, from some of this work is, and this isn't surprising, but I think it's really important for people to understand, this gets how hard it's to be Trump, sort of lower information voters, even basic information like the tax cuts, you know, have gone almost all to the wealthy. Companies haven't created jobs for them. His trade war is hurting the rural economy. Some of the healthcare messaging, all the stuff that we, to your point, we consume a lot of news. We see it, we assume it's hurting Trump. The people that are going to decide this election aren't aware of any of this. It's going to take us you know, and I wish we had another year or two, quite frankly, but at least the next 10 months to kind of tell the right kind of story. As you think about both in the Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, but you also mentioned Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, what do you think the core message work is that needs to get done to beat this guy? I also think just that he's a fraud. He said he was going to fight for working people and he's done the exact opposite. But what's your view of what needs to get done? You guys have probably spent as much time thinking about this as anyone. Yeah, well, listen, the, the reason the polls were wrong in the last election around what the result would be in the Electoral College, the, the national polls were largely right. They said Hillary would win, and she did win the popular vote. Uh, but what was wrong in those state-based polls is they undercounted or undervalued um, the percentage of uh, people who would vote who were non-college-educated whites, right, essentially. And those those voters showed up in greater percentage than the state-based pollsters had assumed that they would in their models. And so the models were wrong. And so Trump won states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and others that, that the pollsters, those state-based pollsters, had assumed uh, he would lose, right? There is a swing group right there, right, which is still on the cusp, right? Many of them would, would still vote for Trump if the election was held today because they don't see an option to address their economic concerns or worries. They don't see someone who can pr- figure out a way to provide good-paying jobs. You know, the issue of healthcare is really sensitive. I mean, I don't think, you know, we have to sort of think too hard to figure this out. The the issue of a single payer healthcare threatens a lot of people who, you know, their healthcare coverage is the last thing they, they have. And they don't want to lose it. Um, they don't know what else there is. And so, listen, I think, listen, Mike Bloomberg created over four, 400,000 jobs um, in New York. Um, he is someone who is always focused on economic empowerment. He's always, he is someone who has not only run you know three campaigns in America's largest city to do it. Uh, he is not only someone who brought New York City back from the brink uh, post 9/11. Mike Bloomberg took office literally weeks after those planes hit, when lots of people had given up in New York. And his first focus was, hey, our our job here is a five borough economic plan. Our job is to bring jobs back to this city 
to bring good work back to people and to put people to work. And New York led a an historic economic recovery. There are still parts of this country which have not seen an economic recovery. And one part of this campaign, whether it's Mike Bloomberg or whomever wants to, to run against Donald Trump and stand a chance of winning, has to reach out uh, to a group of voters who still feel like they don't see a Democrat who can address their core needs. And do you think the most important work that's going to happen in these battleground states with these voters is the positive message about what our nominee is going to do? Or do you believe that it is laying the problems on Trump's doorstep? I think it's a mix. I think, as you said, we have to uh, convince some voters who may or may not see it that Donald Trump has fundamentally lied to him. And we have to give them a better option, Uh, a better option to stand up and address the things that are real concerns for them, concerns that they, as swing voters in those states that you mentioned, don't see someone who they believe can deliver on those needs. Well, thanks, Kevin, for um, your time with us. Good luck uh, on this journey. Uh, Eager to follow your progress. Uh, You probably have uh, a lot of things you're focused on, including building a team. Um, You know, campaigns are ultimately a business. So, yeah, you um, I got a request out. You ready to get on board? What do I got to do? Dude, I'm a stegosaurus. You need fresher (laughs) thinking uh, in this campaign. But anyway, you're you're good to spend time with us. Good luck and eager to follow your progress in uh, the weeks and months ahead. Thank you, sir. So it was great to hear directly from Kevin Sheiky about why they made the decision to skip the first four early states. Clearly, they believe that it was the right decision for Mike Bloomberg in this moment, but they believe our primary system in the Democratic Party is flawed and and think that it should be more of a national primary and, and we should be more focused in that primary on battleground states. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. And I have mixed views on that. I'm sure many of you do too, but it was great to hear a fuller articulation of that. Fascinating to hear about the general election focus they have. Um, It's hard enough to run a primary campaign, but they're kind of trying to do two things. Somewhat connected, but, you know, win enough delegates and votes in primary states, but clearly they're also, you know, engaged in a pretty significant advertising campaign against Donald Trump in battleground states aimed at general election voters. So folks that might not even participate in in the primary. I do think that serves Bloomberg's message that he's the best person to take on Trump and look at the evidence. I'm I'm engaged in the campaign right now. So uh, it's not completely not self-serving, but but it is really interesting. And, you know, to hear a little bit from Kevin about, uh, particularly in Florida, they think Bloomberg gives the Democrats, if he were the nominee, uh, the best chance to win Florida. 29 electoral votes, it's close to a checkmate if we could win it. I really hope we can test it. I think Trump's a strong It's now his home state. I agree with Kevin. He did it to game the tax system, but he probably will get some modest benefit out of moving to Florida. But, you know, it's just a great state for him. He he drove turnout there really well in 16. It's probably the state where he did the best job of that. And that's where his campaign was kind of a goofball escapade. You know, now this is a serious, well-funded effort uh, with an incumbent in the White House. So I think they're going to drive vote in Florida really heavily. Despite that, um, we know how close Florida historically has been. I, I don't think that'll change. I, I do agree Trump should be considered the favorite there. But I think we have to contest it because if we could find a way to get those 29 electoral votes, it puts us right on the doorstep of the White House. So I think the Bloomberg effort is going to be fascinating just because it has never been done before. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if they can basically 
run a parallel race? And if so, I think Bloomberg could be a pretty strong candidate. If not, if, if somebody comes roaring out of South Carolina with momentum, even with all the mo- money Bloomberg's spending, I think it's going to be difficult to compete with if we do have a clear frontrunner. If we don't, and this is just a really muddled race, you know, I, I think the Bloomberg strategy uh, may have a little bit better chance of, of being successful or at least giving him some staying power. So I thought that was a really interesting discussion with Kevin. So thanks for uh, tuning in this week. Even though we're heading into the holidays, the political season does not take a rest. Things are hot and heavy in all four early states. With Bloomberg, it's hot and heavy all over the country. We've got another big debate coming up in December. Maybe we'll have some more candidates uh, dropping out, depending on how they do with their fundraising and and their polling. So, And then I, I do think for all of you, just to remember, we just came out of Thanksgiving it's going to be really heavy three political weeks, you know, take a couple days off, I guess, around the Christmas break. But, you know, once we get out of the new year, um, the campaign really begins. At that point, it's a four-week sprint to Iowa. And obviously, the Bloomberg campaign is betting that, you know, they can skip the first four, but everybody else is making a different bet. And this is where reality comes into play. All the ads, all the spin, all the polls even. What matters is in Iowa, Are you getting the number of people you need out on caucus night? In New Hampshire, are you getting the number of votes you need? In Nevada, the number of people at caucus sites. In South Carolina, the number of people to primary. Basically, the bullshit phase of the campaign is over, and everyone's got to show their cards on the table. And we'll begin to see who can actually put together the kind of coalition that potentially could produce a Democratic nominee. So, you know, this thing gets serious as a heart attack in January. Uh, it's serious now because obviously all the work you're doing now leads into that. But the kind of uh, spring training part of the campaign has really come to a close. We're starting the season now. But in January, we're really going to be in the thick of it. So uh, look forward to spending some time with you between now and then uh, with some of the other campaigns and talking about some of the other important strategies and tactics uh, that folks are deploying as we get closer to the main event. 